This week on the show, we have thoughts on NetBSD 8.0, monitoring love for gigabit OpenBSD firewall, CAT's source history, XORG's uh, root permission bug we cover, as well as thoughts on OpenBSD as a desktop and a Nomad BSD 1.1 release review in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 273, a thoughtful episode, recorded on the 21st of November, 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And another week for us, and great headlines for you as well, uh, beginning with some thoughts on NetBSD 8.0 on DistroWatch. Yeah, so uh, NetBSD 8.0 came out recently, uh, so it's time to see what people think of it. Oh, yeah. And it seems like uh, DistroWatch took a thorough uh, dive into it, uh, but we'll just give you the bits that we thought uh, important enough to to know. Of course, you can always read the full article. Uh, mm -hmm. It starts with that NetBSD is a highly portable operating system which can be run on dozens of different hardware architectures. The operating system's clean and minimal design allow it to be run in all sorts of environments, ranging from embedded devices to servers to workstations. They forgot the toasters. Uh, <laughs> while the base operating system is minimal, NetBSD users have access to a large repository of binary packages and a port tree, which will, uh, they will touch later. So um, they last tried NetBSD 7.0 about three years ago and decided it was time to test drive the operating system again. Oh, three years. Uh, a lot of things can happen in that time. So in the past three years, NetBSD has introduced a few new features, many of them security enhancements. For example, NetBSD now supports write, exclusive, or execute, uh, protection, and address space layout randomization, also known as ASLR, to protect programs against common attacks. NetBSD 8.0 also includes USB 3.0 support and the ability to work with ZFS storage volumes. Early impressions they had are that uh, since they had set up NetBSD with a full install and enabled XDM, during the setup process, the operating system booted to a graphical login screen. From here, we can sign into our account. The login screen does not provide options to shut down or restart the computer. Logging into our account brings up the TWM window manager and provides a virtual terminal, courtesy of Xterm. There is a panel that provides a method for logging out of the window manager. The TWM environment is sparse, fast, and devoid of distractions. Well, I guess you can pretty much install any kind of uh, desktop right. environment on NetBSD. That's not the NetBSD features per se. So, yeah, continuing with software management. NetBSD ships with a fairly standard collection of command line tools and manual pages, but otherwise is fairly minimal. If we want to run network services, have access to a web browser, or use a word processor, we're going to need to install more software. There are two main approaches to installing new packages. The first an easier approach is to use the package in or PKGEN manager, um, uh, which uh, works much of the same way as APT or DNF in the Linux world or as package works on FreeBSD. We can search for software by name, install or remove items. I found package in working well, uh, though its output can be terse. My only complaint uh, with package in is that it does not handle close enough package names for example, if I try to run package in install VLC or package in 
install Firefox, I would quickly be told these items did not exist. But a more forgiving package manager will realize items like VLC 2 or Firefox 4.5 are available and offer to install those. Uh, it seems like a really old version of Firefox. <laughs> yeah, come to think of that, yeah. But yeah, good to know that you need to provide the version number. Mm-hmm. Um, the packaging tool installs new programs in the slash user slash package slash bin directory. Depending on your configuration and shell, this location may not be in your user's path, and it will be helpful to adjust your path variable accordingly. The other common approach to acquiring new software is to use the package source framework. I've talked about using package source before, and I will skip the details. Basically, you can download a collection of recipes for building popular open source software and run on a command uh, and run a command to download and install these items from their source code. Using package source basically gives you the same software as using package inward, but with some added flexibility on the options we use. And once new software has been installed, it may need to be enabled and activated, particularly if it uses or is a background service. New items can be enabled in rc.conf in etc directory and started or stopped using the service commands. This works uh, about the same as the service command on FreeBSD and most non-systemd Linux distributions. Excellent. Okay, let's go to the hardware part. I found that when locked into the TWM environment, NetBSD uses about 130 megabytes of RAM. This included kernel memory and all active memory. A fresh, full install used up 1.5 gigabytes of disk space in generally found uh, that NetBSD ran well in both VirtualBox and my desktop computer. Um, the system was quick and stable. I did not trouble getting a higher screen resolution in both environments. NetBSD does not offer VirtualBox add-on modules. Um, these are NetBSD patches for VirtualBox, or there are NetBSD patches out there uh, for VirtualBox, but there is some manual work involved in getting them working. And when running on my desk computer, I think the resolution issue was one of finding and dealing with the current uh, or correct video driver. Uh, screen resolution aside, NetBSD performed well and detected all my hardware. So, continuing into personal projects. Since NetBSD provides users with a small core operating system without any or many utilities, uh, no, well, there should be any utility there, but not many, yeah. And if they want to use NetBSD for something, we need to have a project in mind. Uh, I had four mini projects in mind and I wanted to try this week. Install a desktop environment, enable file sharing for computers on the local network, test multimedia like video, audio, and YouTube capabilities, and set up a ZFS volume for storage. I began with the desktop. Specifically, I followed the same tutorial I used three years ago to try to set up the XFCE desktop. While XFCE and its supporting devices or services uh, were installed, I was unable to get a working desktop out of the experience. I could get the XFCE window manager working, but not the entire session. This tutorial worked beautifully with NetBSD 7.0, but not with version 8.0. Undeterred, I switched gears and installed Fluxbox instead. This gave me a slightly more powerful graphical environment, that, uh, than what I had uh, before with TWM while maintaining performance. And uh, Fluxbox ran without any problems, though its application menu was automatically populated with many programs which were not actually installed. Okay, next I tried installing a few multimedia applications to play audio and video files. Here I ran into a couple of interesting problems. I found the music players I installed would play audio files, but the audio was quite slow. I all, uh, it always sounded like a cassette tape dragging. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, for the people who still remember those. Uh, when I tried to play a video, the entire graphical session would crash, taking me back to the login screen. Ooh. Uh, when I installed Firefox, I found I could play YouTube videos and the video played smoothly, but again, the audio was unusually slow. Sounds like it might have been the frequency being slightly off, like it was going in at 44.1, but was trying to play it at 48k or something like that. Mm. Well, yeah, there's the first thing I think of that would make it uh, sound like somebody was talking slowly. <laughs> yeah, very. Yeah, 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 you can play that video. We if, can play our podcast. Uh, some mismatch <laughs> on the uh, the frequency. Mm. Yeah, this would be uh, something that could probably be fixed. Um, I set up two methods of sharing files on the local network, OpenSSH and FTP. NetBSD basically gives us OpenSSH for free at install time, and I added an FTP server through the packaging, uh, package manager, which worked beautifully with its default configuration. Uh, I experimented with ZFS support a little, just enough to confirm I could create and access ZFS volumes. Uh, ZFS seems to work on NetBSD just as well and with the same basic features as it does on FreeBSD and mainstream Linux distributions. I think this is a good feature for the portable operating system to have since it means you can stick NetBSD on nearly any network computer and use it as a network-attached storage. Yeah, especially in those architectures will never have official support uh, for ZFS, like some mainframes and uh, toasters. and <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that ZFS works on all of those yet on NetBSD. Uh, and even if it did, as long as your toaster has enough RAM... <laughs> <laughs> okay, conclusions. NetBSD, like its close cousins, FreeBSD and OpenBSD, does not do a, a lot of hand-holding or automation. Uh, it offers a foundation that will run on most CPUs, and we can choose to build on that foundation. I mentioned this bef because on its own, NetBSD does not do much. If we want to get something out of it, we need to be willing to build on its foundation. We need a project. This is important to keep in mind, as I think going to NetBSD and thinking... Huh. Oh, I'll just explore around and expand on this as I go. Will likely lead to disappointment. I recommend figuring out what you want to do before installing NetBSD and making sure the acquired tools are available in the operating system's repositories. I think that, in general, is uh, kind of a, a key takeaway as far as accomplishing anything in kind of an open source project is, you know, you don't just install a BSD and then explore so much as if you have an idea of what you want to do, uh, you'll find that you actually learn more and uh, accomplish more. Yeah, and you can find a lot of documentation on NetBSD, how to set things up like a desktop or other things you're interested in. Um, but some of the projects I embarked on this week using ZFS and setting up file sharing worked well. Others like getting multimedia support and a full-featured desktop did not. Uh, given more time, I'm sure I could find a suitable desktop to install, along with the required documentation to get it and its services running, or customize one based on one of the available window managers. And uh, However, any full-featured desktop is going to require some manual work. Media support was not great, the right players and codecs were there, but I was not able to get audio to play smoothly. And, uh, yeah, their main complaint with NetBSD was that it relates uh, to their struggles to get some features working in their satisfaction. Documentation is scattered. There are four different sections on a project's website for documentation, like FAQs, the guide, manual pages, and the wiki. Uh, whatever we are looking for is likely to be in one of those, but which one? 
or I just uh, as likely the, vid the tutorial we want is not there, uh, but it's on a forum or blog somewhere. I found that the documentation provides uh, was often thin, more of a, thick, of a quick reference to remind people how something works rather than a full explanation. As an example, I found a couple of documents relating to setting up a firewall. One dealt with networking uh, NetBSD on a LAN. Uh, another explored IPv6 support, but neither gave an overview of syntax or basic guides to blocking all but one or two ports. It seemed like that information should already be known or picked up elsewhere. Newcomers are likely to be a bit confused by software management guides for the same reason. Some pages refer to using a tool called package underscore add, and others use package source and its make utility, others mention package in. Ultimately, these tools each approximately have the same result but work differently and yet are mentioned almost interchangeably. I have used NetBSD before a few times and could but new users are likely to come away confused. Yeah, One, uh, I think that's a matter of you know, which tools recommended has changed over time and the documentation hasn't kept up. Yeah, that could basically be the the reason and it's not just limited to that project. Right, because um, I don't know, like, do they still even have package underscore add? I'm pretty sure package in is a replacement for that. Yeah, it's just, yeah. You also need to look at uh, the documentation dates. I get that with students a lot. They they Google something on and find, of course, some Stack Overflow articles, but they're from 2016, and that still mentions package underscore add for FreeBSD. And well, if that's it's from how 2016, I, it shouldn't. We've had package since 2018. Yeah, well, from an older age. And, and I'm just right. telling them... Well, uh, even this article said he was trying to follow a tutorial for NetBSD 7 from three years ago. I'm like, well, I can see why that might not actually work. Times change and software too, yeah. Yeah, so uh, one quirk they also found on NetBSD is, uh, which may be a security feature or an inconvenience, depending on one's point of view, is super user programs are not included in regular users' paths. This means we need to change our path if we want to be able to run programs typically used by root. For example, shutdown and mount are not in regular users' paths by default. This made checking some... Uh, yeah, this made checking some things tricky for me. Uh, uh, I remember when Red Hat used to do that. It drove me nuts. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, this is uh, easily fixed. And yeah, maybe someone uh, will put yeah, that in. Weird. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's not what you expect typically. And ultimately, though, NetBSD is not famous for its convenience or features so much so much as its flexibility. The operating system will run on virtually any processor and should work almost identically across multiple platforms. That's their big strength. That gives NetBSD users a good deal of consistency across a range of hardware and a chance to experiment with a member of the Unix family on hardware that might not be compatible with Linux or the other BSDs. Yeah, if you have something old and exotic, uh, NetBSD is probably the right answer. Chances are it will run and it will run well even. And the rest is your uh, responsibility to set things up the way you want to have it. All right. And next up, we have uh, that showing a gigabit OpenBSD firewall, some monitoring love is a thing. Yep. Uh, so this article over here, it says, uh, I have a pretty long history of running my home servers or, or firewalls on exotic hardware. At first, it was a Sun Microsystems hardware, and then it moved to a Socris uh, with some cool single-board computers thrown in the mix. Recently, I've been running OpenBSD on an Octeon on the Ubiquiti Edge Rider Lite, uh, which is an amazing little piece of kit at a great price point. 
So upgrade time. Uh, this setup has served me for some time and I've been extremely happy with it. But in my first world problems category, I recently upgraded the household to a gigabit fiber offering from local ISP Sonic. Uh, a great problem to have, but also too much of a problem for the little edge router light. Uh, the way the OpenBSD PF firewall works, uh, it's only able to process packets on a single core. Not a problem on a dual core 500 megahertz uh, edge router light when you're pushing you know, 200 megabits, but when you have a gigabit now, that's probably too much. Yeah, there's a limit. Uh, so, 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 well, you know what, the, what we need? More power. <laughs> Tool time, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I needed something that will uh, that was faster on a per core basis, but still satisfied the usual firewall requirements. So uh, f small form factor, fanless, multiple Intel Ethernet ports, low power consumption, uh, not something regular <laughs> and off the shelf. I got to be different uh, and relatively inexpensive. After evaluating a lot of different options, they settled on the Protectly Vault FW2B. Uh, with the specs required for the firewall, like giving you 2 gigs of RAM, 8 gigs of disk space, uh, and only $239 US. Uh, installed OpenBSD 6.4. It was straightforward. The only problem I had was uh, the Etcher program did not want to recognize the .fs extension of the install image as bootable, but quickly fixed that with a good old Unix DD. <laughs> so after loading the same rule set on my new machine... Uh, and running the speed test again, instead of topping out at about 200 megabits, uh, they got all of their gigabit. So now to the point, adding some monitoring. Uh, so now that the machine was up and running and fast, I wanted to know what it was doing. Over the years, I've always relied on PFstat uh, to give me an overview of my traffic, what was blocked, and so on. Uh, and you kind of get an example of what it looks like. Pretty sparse RRD-like graphs. Yeah, but still uh, As you can see, you. based on the RRD tool, uh, which is simply incredible in its time, having worked on monitoring almost continuously for the past decade, I wanted to see if we could re-implement the same functionality using more modern tools, as RRD tool and PFstat definitely have limitations. Uh, this might be an opportunity to learn some new things. So they came across PF-Graphite, which seems to uh, be a great start. We had everything we need, and I added a few more stats uh, from the detailed interface statistics and the ability to uh, have the code uh, exit for running from cron, which is a bit more OpenBSD style. Uh, so I added code for sending to some SAS metrics platforms, but ultimately stuck with straight graphite. Uh, one important thing to note was that using the graphite pickle port instead of the default plaintext port for submission, uh, and you also need to set the log interface in your pf.conf to send the pf logs to an interface you can listen on. Uh, a bit of tweaking uh, with graphite and Grafana, and we have a nice graph. Oh, yeah. Well, you can also zoom in and uh, yes. do some uh, other things. More flexibility than you do with it, just an RRD tool graph. 
they um, say I've added the JSON for the Grafana dashboard as well as some changes to their fork uh, in the repo. So you can go check it out on GitHub. Because it's a Grafana dashboard, you can use it with many different backends uh, if Graphite doesn't suit you well. Uh, but check it out. Oh, yeah. And I mean, this could basically be filtered through any firewall that has some kind of internal log interface. Yeah. If you can get the stats out of it, uh, it'll work. Mm -hmm. So thank you to Dave Mango for the post. Yep. And next up is the source history of cat. No, not your furry friend. This is catalog on Unix. Remember? Yes. Uh, catalog or? It is catalog. Is it? Yeah. It's not. Okay. Yeah. It's not freaking catnate, right? <laughs> yeah, well, or that, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, let the users find out. Mancat, that's your, <laughs> your right answer. <laughs> so, uh, here's uh, a rather long post. We're going to read a bunch of it, but not all of it. You're definitely worth going and checking it out. Um, starts off saying, I once had a debate with members of my extended family about whether a computer science degree uh, is a degree worth pursuing. I was in college at the time and trying to decide whether I should major in computer science. My aunt and cousin uh, of mine believed that I shouldn't. And they conceded that knowing how to program is, of course, a useful and lucrative thing, but they argued that the field of computer science advances so quickly that everything I learned would uh, be almost immediately outdated. Better to pick up programming on the side and instead major in a field like economics or physics where the basic principles would be applicable throughout my lifetime. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, hmm. There's something to be said for that concept, but uh, I knew that my aunt and cousin were wrong and decided to major in computer science. <laughs> uh, it is easy to see why the average person might believe that a field like computer science or a professional like software engineering uh, completely reinvents itself every few years. Uh, we've had personal computers, then the web, then phones, then machine learning. You know, technology is always changing. So surely all of the underlying principles and techniques must change too. Of course, the amazing thing is how little actually changes. Most people, I'm sure, would not be stunned to know just how old some of the important software on their computer really is. I'm not talking about f flashy application software. Admittedly, my copy of Firefox, the program which probably uses most of my computer, is not even two weeks old. But if you pull up the manual pages for something like grep, you'll see that it hasn't really been updated since 2010, uh, at least on macOS. And the original version of grep was written in 1974. That's 10 years before I was even born. Mm. Uh, when in the computing world was back when dinosaurs roamed Silicon Valley, uh, people and programs still depended on grep every day. So just because it's old doesn't mean it's not good. So my aunt and cousin thought of computer technology as a series of increasingly elaborate sandcastles uh, supplanted one another You know, every time there was a high tide that cleared the beach. The reality, uh, as in many areas, is that we steadily increment, or sorry, accumulate programs that have solved problems. Uh, we might want to have uh, occasionally modify these programs to avoid software rot, but otherwise they are, can be left alone. Grep is a simple program that solves a still relevant problem, so it survives. Most application programming is done at a very high level, atop a pyramid of much older code solving much older problems. 
the ideas and concepts of 30 or 40 years ago, far from being obsolete today, have in many cases uh, embodied software that you can find and install on your laptop. Uh, so I thought it would be interesting to take a look at one such old program and see how much it has actually changed since it was first written. Cat may be the simplest of all Unix utilities, and so I'm going to use it as an example. Ken Thompson wrote the original implementation of Cat in 1969. If I were to tell someone that I have a program on my computer from 1969, uh, <laughs> what would, would that be accurate? How much of Cat uh, has really evolved over the decades? How old is the software on your computer? Thanks to repositories uh, like the Unix History Repository, we can see exactly how Cat has evolved since 1969. I'm going to focus on implementations of Cat that are ancestors of the original implementation. Uh, so I have. Uh, on his MacBook Pro. You'll see as we trace Cat from the first version of Usix down to the modern Mac OS uh, that the program has been rewritten more times than you might expect, but it ultimately works more or less the same uh, as it did 50 years ago. So starting with Research Unix uh, in the early 1970s, uh, Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie began writing Unix on a PDB-7 in 1969. Uh, before there was even a C programming language. So all the early Unix software was written in PDP-7 assembly. The exact uh, flavor of assembly was that uh, they used was unique to Unix since Ken Thompson wrote his own assembler that added some features on top of the assembler provided by DEC. Uh, Thompson's changes are all documented in the original Unix programmer's manual under an entry for AS, which is the assembler, which is still what we call the assembler today. The first implementation of CAT is thus uh, written in PDB-7 assembly. Uh, I've added comments that try to explain what each of the instructions is doing, but the program is still difficult to follow unless you understand some of the extensions that Thomas ma uh, Thompson made while writing his assembler. There are two important ones. First, the semicolon character can be used to separate multiple statements on the same line. It appears that this was used uh, most often to put system call arguments on the same line as the sys instruction. Uh, anyway, you're probably not interested in the assembly bits. Uh, the most interesting thing about the first version of cat is that it contains two names we should recognize. There's a block of instructions called getc uh, and a block of instructions called putc for get character and put character. Uh, you know, demonstrating that these names are actually older than the C standard library. Mm -hmm. The first version of cat actually contained implementations of both of these functions. The implementations buffered input so that reads and writes were done not just one character at a time, even before C was invented. Um, the first version of cat did not last long. Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie were able to persuade Bell Labs to buy them a PDP-11 so that they could continue to extend and improve Unix. The PDB-11 had a different instruction set, so cat had to be rewritten. Uh, they marked up the second version of cat with comments as well, uh, and you can see takes advantage of the PDP-11's different addressing modes. The second version of cat is uh, actually slightly simpler than the first. It is also more Unix-y in that it doesn't just expect a list of file name arguments. It will, uh, given no arguments, read from standard input, which is what cat still does today. You can also give this version of cat an argument of dash to indicate that it should read from standard input. In 1973, 
uh, in preparation for the release of the fourth edition of Unix, much of Unix was rewritten in C. But CAT does not seem to have been rewritten in C until well after that. The first C implementation of CAT only showed up in the seventh edition of Unix. Uh, this improvement is really fun to look through though, uh, because it's so simple. Of all the uh, implementations to follow, this one most resembles the idealized cat used in pedagogical demonstrations uh, of KNRC. The heart of the program is a classic two-liner. You know, while get character from your input file descriptor is not end of line or end of file, print that character back out. Uh, there is, of course, quite a bit more code than that but the extra code is mostly there to ensure that you aren't reading and writing the same file. And other interesting things of note is that this implementation of cat only recognizes one flag, dash u. The u flag could be used to avoid buffering on input and output, uh, which cat would otherwise do in blocks of 512 bytes uh, for efficiency. Mm -hmm. So then we come to BSD. After the seventh edition, Unix spawned all sorts of derivatives and offshoots. MacOS itself is built on top of Darwin, which in turn is a derivative of BSD, the Berkeley Software Redistribution. Uh, skipping the definition of what BSD is, yeah, the for BSD implementation of CAT is clearly derived from this original implementation, though it adds uh, a new function to implement the behavior triggered by the new flags. The naming convention already used in the file uh, was adhered to, so the FFLG variable used to mark whether input was being read from standard in or a file was joined by n flag, b flag, v flag, s flag, e flag, and t flag. <laughs> All there to record whether or not each new flag was uh, supplied by the invitation, uh, invocation of the program. There were uh, the last command line flags added to cat. The man page for cat today lists these flags and no others, at least on macOS. 4BSD was released in 1980, so this set of flags is 38 years old at the writing of this article. CAT would be entirely rewritten a final time for BSD net slash 2, which was, among other things, an attempt to avoid licensing issues by replacing all of AT&T's Unix-derived code with new code. Uh, BSD net 2 was released in 1991. Uh, this final rewrite of CAT was done by Kevin Fall, who graduated from Berkeley in 1988 and spent the next year working as a staff member at the Computer Systems Research Group, or CSRG. Uh, Fall told me that a list of Unix utilities still implemented using AT&T code was put up on a wall at the CSRG, and staff were told to pick the utility they wanted to re-implement. So Fall picked CAT and MKNOD, which is for making device notes. <coughs> The CAT implementation bundled with macOS today is built from a source file that still bears Kevin Fall's name uh, at the very top. His version of CAT, even though it is a trivial program, is still used today by millions of people. Fall's original implementation of CAT is much longer than anything we've seen so far. Um, other than support for a dash question mark help flag, it adds nothing in the way of new functionality. Conceptually, it is very similar to the 4BSD implementation. It is only longer because Fall separated the implementation into raw mode and cooked mode. <laughs> the raw mode of cat is classic. It prints a file character for character. The cooked mode of cat 
with all the four BSD command line options, um, the distinction makes sense, um, but it also pads out the implementation so that it uh, seems more complex at first glance than it actually is. Uh, there is also a fancy error handling function at the end of the file that uh, adds to its length. So looking at the history of cat in macOS, uh, back in 2001, Apple launched the latest version of macOS 10, or sorry, the first version. Uh, the very first release of macOS 10 thus included an implementation of cat pulled from the NetBSD project. So the first macOS implementation of cat is Kevin Fall's original cat. The only thing that has changed over the intervening decades is that the error handling function, ERR, uh, has been moved to the C standard library, basically. Uh, the NetBSD implementation of cat was later swapped out for the FreeBSD implementation of cat. According to Wikipedia, Apple began using FreeBSD instead of NetBSD for Mac OS 10.3. Uh, but the Mac OS implementation of CAT, according to Apple's own source code releases, uh, was not actually replaced until 10.5, Leopard, uh, in 2007. The FreeBSD implementation that Apple swapped in for the Leopard release is the same implementation that Apple computers still use today. As of 2018, the implementation has not been updated or changed at all since 2007. So the macOS cat is old. Uh, as it happens, it is actually two years older than the 2007 appearance of macOS 10 would suggest. The 2005 change, which is visible in FreeBSD's GitHub mirror, was the last change made to FreeBSD's cat before Apple pulled it in for OS 10. So the mm -hmm. Apple OS 10 cat implementation, which has not been kept in sync with FreeBSD's cat, is officially 13 years old there's a longer debate to be had about how much software can change before it really counts as being the same software. In this case, the source code has not really changed since 2005. Uh, the cat implementation used by OS 10 today uh, is not that different from the implementation that Kevin Fall wrote back in 1991. Uh, the biggest difference is that the, uh, a whole new function has been added to provide Unix domain socket support. And at some point, uh, the FreeBSD developers replaced the raw args and cooked args arguments with a new scan files uh, function. Otherwise, the heart of the program is still very much Kevin Fall's original code. So uh, the author asked Kevin Fall how he felt about having written the cat implementation now used by millions of Apple users, either directly or indirectly, through the same program that relies on cat, or you know some other program that relies on cat being present. Fall, who is now a consultant and co-author of the most recent editions of TCP Illustrated, uh, says he is surprised when people get such a thrill out of learning that his work on CAT. It was a very basic program, right? <laughs> Fall has a, had a long career in computing and has worked on many high-profile projects, but it seems that many people still get the most excitement out of the six months of work he put into rewriting CAT in 1989. <laughs> Well, at least yeah. it's not being known for written, writing something bad. But yes. oh yeah, <laughs> it's it positive uh, uh, people's history mind. And I, I know that a lot of CS courses actually let people um, do a clean room implementation of like just do cat. If you have never heard and about then cat, eventually or seen the compare page. it to uh, what the current implementation is and see what you did differently, yeah. uh, and so on. And it's it's an interesting exercise. Uh, so anyway. 
they have a final section here titled the 100-year-old program. In the grand scheme of things, computers are not an old invention. We're used to 100-year-old photographs or even 100-year-old camera footage. But computer programs are in a different category. Uh, They're high-tech and new. At least they are now. At the computer industry matures, uh, will we someday find ourselves using programs that approach the 100-year-old mark? Uh, Computer hardware will presumably change enough that we won't be able to take an executable compiled today and run it on hardware a century from now. Well, people would have probably agreed with that statement in the 90s, uh, and turns out (laughs) it Mm. mostly works. Um, Perhaps advances in programming language design will also mean that nobody will understand C in the future, and CAT will uh, long since been rewritten in some other language. Although C has already been around for 50 years, and it doesn't look like it's getting replaced anytime soon. But barring all that, why not just... uh, keep using CAT like we have forever. I think the history of CAT shows that some ideas in computer science are in fact very durable. Indeed, with CAT, both the idea and the program itself are old. It may not be accurate to say that the CAT on your computer is the one from 1969, but it could make a case that saying that CAT on my computer is the one from 1989, uh, when Fall wrote his implementation of CAT. Lots of other software is just as ancient. So maybe we shouldn't uh, think of computer science and software development primarily as fields that disrupt the status quo and invent new things. Uh, Our computer systems are built out of historical artifacts. At some point, we may all spend more time trying to understand and maintain these historical artifacts than we spend writing new code. Mostly the usefulness of CAT is also related to pipes uh, and just the basic text processing tools are still the best thing out there. Yeah, keep it simple and you may have a chance that your program is still around after a while and will also be found on many other systems implementing similar functionality. So yeah, great article. Yes, uh, it'd be funny to ask Kevin Fall, so what do you think about the fact that your copy of Cat that you wrote in 1989 is in my washing machine at home? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is that scary or is it uh, yeah less scary for you well hmm. depends on what the people are using <laughs> it for yeah <laughs> so after this history lesson about cat we have the news roundup for this week starting with a trivial bug in xorg uh, that gives root permissions on linux and bsd systems apparently Mm-hmm. So this is over at uh, bleepingcomputer.com, and uh, they write that a vulnerability that is trivial to exploit allows privilege escalation to root level on Linux and BSD distributions using x.org server, the open source implementation of the X Windows system that offers the graphical environment. Uh, the flaw is now identified as CVE 2018-14665, uh, credited to security researcher Narendra Shindi. And it has been present at XORG server for two years since version 1.19.0 and is exploitable by a limited user as long as the X server runs with elevated permissions. Yeah, That's so why um, on some systems, the XORG binary has set UID to root so that it'll be able to talk to the video card. Uh, and so in this case, incorrect command line argument parsing meant that the log file argument could be pointed at something like the password file, or in, in Linux, the shadow file, and on BSD, the master password file, uh, and cause it to output, overwrite the file with a line that says, you know, 
here's root's new password it's blank or whatever uh mm. which then someone could then do sue to root uh and not need a password and have root access to the system or something yeah uh before you start uh making deinstalls quickly uh look at the dates for this article it's from october 26th so no panic or the panic has already receded probably because there are fixes out there just to yeah. uh we just wanted to cover the story because we found it um important enough so an advisory on thursday way back when uh describes the problem as an incorrect command line parameter validation that also allows an attacker to override arbitrary files as alan mentioned and the Privilege escalation can be accomplished with the dash module path argument by setting an insecure path to modules loaded by the x.org server. Arbitrary file override is possible through the dash log file argument because an improper verification when parsing the option yeah, is present. So um, the bug could have been avoided in OpenBSD 6.4. OpenBSD, the free and open source operating system with a strong focus on security, uses XORG. On October 18, the project released version 6.4 of the OS, affected by said CVE, and this could have been avoided, though. Theodore Rat, founder and leader of the OpenBSD project, says that X-Maintainer knew about the problem since at least October 11. For some reason, the OpenBSD developers received a message one hour before the public announcement this Thursday, a week after the new OS release. Ah, bad timing. As yet, we don't have uh, answers, I quote here, uh, about why our ex-maintainer or the ex-security team and his team provided information to other projects, some of who don't even ship with his new ex-server, but choose to not give us the heads-up which could have uh, saved all the new 6.4 users a lot of grief, uh, said Theo the Rat. Um, had OpenBSD developers known about the bug before the release, they could have taken steps to mitigate the problem or delay the launch for a week or two. To remedy the problem, the OpenBSD project provided a source code patch which requires compiling and rebuilding the X server. As a temporary solution, though, users can disable the XORG binary by running the following command. So you do a change mod for the user minus S, and then uh, the path is user x11r6 slash bin slash XORG. So that doesn't disable it. It just takes the set UID bit off. Oh, right. So it will, yeah. it will run as a regular user instead of running as root. Yeah, um, which is anyway, they show a trivial way to exploit it. Uh, interestingly, uh, FreeBSD was still shipping XORG 1.18.something uh, and so wasn't affected by this bug. But uh, most other distros were, including Debian, Ubuntu, Fedora, CentOS, etc. The major ones on the Linux side, yeah. Okay, well, um, so the CVE does not help compromise systems, but it is useful in the following stages of an attack. Um, you can leverage it after gaining access to a vulnerable machines, uh, which is fairly easy. Uh, Matthew Hickey, co-founder and head of the Hacker House security outfit, created and published an exploit saying that it can be triggered from a remote SSH session. Uh, three yep, hours. So Moving That's, on, yeah. uh, we have some thoughts on OpenBSD on a desktop. Oh. So they say, I've been using OpenBSD on a ThinkPad X230 for a few weeks now, and the experience has been peculiar in some ways. The OS itself, in my opinion, is not ready for widespread desktop usage, and the development team is not trying to push it uh, in the sort of everyone who wants a Windows or Mac alternative. Um, you need to understand a little bit about how Unix systems work, because you'll use the CLI more than the user interface. That depends. Mm. Um, although, I guess I mostly use the user interface to run many 
shells, but <laughs> exactly that's what it's for. <laughs> um, that's not necessarily bad, and I'm sure I learned a trick or two that could easily translate uh, to Linux or Mac OS. Um, their development process is purely based on developers that love to contribute and hack uh, and so on, and it's usually just because it's fun. Uh, even the mailing list is a cool place to hang out. Uh, code correctness and security are a must. Nothing gets committed if it didn't get reviewed thoroughly first. Nowadays, the first two properties should be enforced in every major operating system. He says, I like the idea of a platform that continually evolves. So the pledge and unveil are proof that uh, with some effort, you can evolve all that existing old software. Although some days I think it would be less effort to just write everything new again. Mm. Um, he says he also likes the sensible defaults approach. Uh, having an OS ready to be used, UI included, if you select it during the install process is great. Just install a browser and you're ready to go. Uh, the manual pages in OpenBSD are real manuals, not just a reprint of the dash help arguments um, to help you understand the inner workings of the operating system and no internet connection is required. There are, of course, some trade-offs. Uh, performance is not first class, mostly because of all the security mitigations and um, the still somewhat single-threadedness of parts of OpenBSD. Um, Say I write Go code in NeoVim, and sometimes you can feel a slight slowdown when you're compiling and editing multiple files at the same time, but usually I wouldn't notice anything uh, that makes a meaningful difference. The browsers are a different matter, though. You can definitely feel something different from your experience on a more mainstream operating system. But again, these are trade-offs. To use OpenBSD on the desktop, you must be ready to sacrifice some of the goodies of a mainstream OS, but if you're searching for a Zen place to do your computer stuff, uh, it's the best thing you can get right now. Hmm. Okay. Good to know. And we have another piece uh, in our next section, another uh, DistroWatch article about Nomad BSD 1.1 uh, review. So that goes, uh, one of the most recent additions to the DistroWatch database is Nomad BSD. According to the Nomad BSD website, Nomad BSD is a 64-bit live system for USB flash drives based on FreeBSD. Yeah, we covered that last semester. No, not semester, <laughs> last episode. But that's basically the description people would already know. And um, the latest release of Nomad BSD, or simply Nomad, as I will refer to in the project um, review here, uh, that is version 1.1. It is based on FreeBSD 11.2 and is offered in two builds, one for the generic personal computers and one for MacBooks. The release announcement mentions version 1.1, uh, offers improved video driver support for Intel and AMD cards. The operating system ships with Octo package. Oh, really? Uh, for graphical package management, and the system uh, should automatically detect and work with VirtualBox environments. A Nomad BSD 1.1 is available as a 2 gigabyte download, which we can decompress to produce a 4 gigabyte file, which can be written to a USB thumb drive. There is no optical media built for, for Nomad or off Nomad as it is designed to be run entirely from the USB drive and the write uh, data persistently to the drive rather than simply being installed from the USB media. So, initial setup steps. Booting from the USB drives brings up a series of text-based menus which ask us to configure key parts of the operating system. We are asked to select our time zone, keyboard layout, keyboard model, keyboard mapping, and our preferred language. While we can... Uh, select options from a list, the options tend to be short and cryptic. 
Rather than English US, for example, we might be given Ian underscore US. We're also tasked to create a password for the root user account and another one for a regular user, which is called Nomad. We can then select which shell Nomad will use. Uh, the default is Z shell, uh, but there is a plenty of other options available, including Seashell and the Bash. We have the option of encrypting our user's home directory as well. Uh, I feel it is important to point out that these settings and Nomad's home directory are stored on the USB drive. The options and settings uh, we select will not be saved to our local hard drive and our configuration choices will not affect other operating systems already installed on our computer. At the end, the configuration wizard asks if we want to run the BSD stats service. This option is not explained at all, but it contacts BSD stats to provide some basic statistics on BSD users. Yeah, in case you're standing in a, a room full of <laughs> computers for sale and you want to check out whether that works uh, on your BSD system, that's yeah, good. Sometimes, uh, you know, I just want to fix a computer. Or uh, that, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> also I've helpful. used the FreeBSD live stick before to you know, image hard drives off laptops and, you know, replace a, a, a dying hard drive or a smaller hard drive with a bigger one uh, by just booting up FreeBSD because give me some tools that I, I know how to use and uh, make them not be running off the hard drive I'm about to do something to. Yeah, especially if you're saving Z pools and other stuff. Uh, um, yeah, that can be. Rarely need to do any rescuing for ZFS, but. You're right, yeah. But yeah, in case um, disaster strikes, you have a, a non-readable or not writable system. Um, the system then takes a few minutes to apply its changes to the USB drive and automatically reboots the computer. While running the initial setup wizard, I had nearly identical experiences when running Nomad on a physical computer and running the operating system in a VirtualBox virtual machine. However, after the initial setup process was over, I had quite different experiences depending on the environment, so I want to divide my experiences into two different sections. So they have a physical desktop computer session and another one which you don't cover here, but it's in the article. So just for the physical desktop part, uh, at first Nomad failed to boot on my desktop computer. From the operating system's bootloader, I enabled safe mode, which allowed Nomad to boot. At that point, Nomad was able to start up, but would only display a text console. The desktop environment failed to start when running in safe mode. Networking was also disabled by default, and I had to enable a network interface and the HCP address assignment to connect to the internet. Uh, instructions for enabling networking can be found in FreeBSD's handbook. Uh, once we are online, we can use the package command line package manager to install and update software. Had the desktop environment worked, um, then the Octo package graphical package manager would also be available to make browsing and installing software a point-and-click experience. Had I been able to run the desktop for prolonged amounts of time, I could have made use of such pre-installed items as the Firefox web browser, VLC media player, LibreOffice, and Thunderbird. Nomad offers a fairly small collection of desktop applications, but what is there is mostly popular, capable software. When running the operating system, I noted that with one user logged in, Nomad only runs 15 processes with the default configuration. These processes require less than 100 megabytes of RAM, and the whole system fits comfortably on a 4 gigabyte USB drive. So the conclusions here uh, from the whole article is that ultimately using Nomad was not a practical option for me. The operating system did not work well with my hardware or the virtual environment. Uh, in the virtual machine, Nomad crashed consistently after just a few minutes of uptime. On the desktop computer, I could not get a desktop environment to run. 
the command line tools worked well and the system performed tasks very quickly, but a command line only environment is not well suited to my workflow. I like the idea of what Nomad BSD is offering. There are not many da live desktop flavors of FreeBSD-based uh, plug-and-go operating systems that would offer desktop and uh, persistent storage. I suspect the system would work and perform it, uh, its stated functions on different hardware, but in my case, my experiment was necessarily short-lived. Yeah, well, I think Nomad will improve over time. Uh, and I wonder how much of it is the AMD graphics card uh, in their physical hardware there. Could be. I guess there are other people who have uh, other experiences uh, on yeah, different well, Yeah, it's an early version of Nomad. So, time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have uh, another blog post about uh, FreeBSD Lockless Algorithms, SEQ, by Marsh Saborski here on his blog, which becomes a regular show item, it seems, yes. which is good because there's always interesting stuff to read. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about uh, SEQ, the SEQ. Uh, uh, not, the, not, not the SEQ program, it's the, no, the, the locking. No, a sequential type of locking where yeah. you uh, indicate when you're going to do reads or writes from a variable. Uh, so that basically allows you to consistently read uh, from the variable um, and only have to lock it when writing. Uh, so when you begin writing, you add uh, to the sequence. And when you finish writing, you add again. Um, and then only when the number is even, uh, do is it safe to read? Oh, okay. And there are code examples here, and uh, also a graphic at the bottom. So you can see how the readers and writers um, uh, using their sequence numbers to make it consistent. Um, yeah, it's well worth the read. And uh, yeah, thanks, Marius, for writing that. Uh, next up, we have Happy Bob's Lib TLS tutorial. Excellent, uh, by none other than Bob Beck itself. And yes, uh, so this is the tutorial that was given at BSD Can and uh, EuroBSDCon, um, but it's the latest and greatest version, uh, fresh on the GitHub. Ah, great, yeah. And uh, the next item is locking OpenBSD when it's sleeping. Yes, uh, so uh, the user who wrote the blog here says, I frequent the OpenBSD BSD IRC channel and help people. And a common question I get asked is how to automatically lock your machine when putting it to sleep with the ZZZ command. I answered this question in a previous article, which was actually written four years ago, uh, but it was written in French. So here it is in English. So um, the trick is to write a script in the etc apm suspend directory to uh, which gets run when the computer goes to sleep. And then you can just say, you know, in this example, uh, do as their user uh, run xlock. Hmm. Um, this is off to a great start, but if you are a startx user versus a xenodm, um, be sure to run exact startx and not just startx. Otherwise, it's possible to kill x and then have access to the shell. If you don't set a minimum lifetime on your SSH agent, or sorry, if you don't set a maximum lifetime on your SSH agent, you should clear the identities with the SSH-add-capital-D flag uh, so that when you 
shut the lid or whatever on the machine, it forgets all your keys, so you have to load them again. You should also revoke any sudo permissions with sudo dash capital K. Uh, do as doesn't have the same thing, uh, so it's do as dash L. Uh, although it says that won't help you much. Uh, you might also want to clear your clipboard, so it mentions how to do that and uh, says you know you can apply the same thing um, to other concepts like your GNOME key ring, your GPG keys, SSH control variables, and so on. They also say beware of the cat. Now that I have a captive advanced threat, I feel the need to automatically lock the screen after it has been idle for a short time. You can achieve this with xidle. Uh, the man page is sufficiently descriptive that I won't talk about that any further. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very nice. Mm -hmm. uh, next up is we have IIO, the OpenBSD way, uh, which gives you serve IIO or serveio. <laughs> uh, which is a simple, easy-to-use DLNA media server that does on-the-fly media transcoding and demuxing to enable a hassle-free DLNA experience. It also has an integrated HTML5 media server for on-the-go use on your mobile or in your browser. And basically, mm -hmm. it's a how-to, how to get that uh, running. So right. It's you fairly short and easy. Serve video files to devices like smart TVs uh, from your own BSD computer. That's ah, cool. Great. It's just not a couple of... Uh, it's, uh, it's actually quite straightforward and not too much mm -hmm. stuff to configure. Great. Uh, I'm guessing if it's just using FFmpeg, it's not going to be able to use your video card to do the transcoding or anything, but that's probably not that big of a deal. Mm. That is okay. Cool. Yeah. <clears throat> as well probably as much the next lighter item. weight than something like Plex if you have a, a slightly less powerful NAS. Yeah. Yeah. To uh, stream that into... Other people's uh, or in your within your home. Uh, so here, over at bsdboy.ml, <laughs> okay. we have installing Hugo and publishing Hugo web pages using OpenBSD. I like Hugo. Uh, so the only dependencies this has is uh, Go and Mage, which is basically Make for Go. Um, or I think I mentioned they just have a binary package to install Hugo, but mm. uh, after you set it up you can start building a website. So you make a, do Hugo new site and then a directory and it will start setting it up. You go in there and you can download say a theme uh, and then you just uh, put that in the config file, start the Hugo server uh, and it will start listening and you can put your web browser at localhost uh, and then you could just start writing new posts and stuff and it will dynamically refresh as you edit the pages. And if you just run Hugo, it will uh, generate the public directory with all your output files in it. And then you point your web server at those files, either directly or rsync them or SCP them to the web server or whatever. And now you have your statically generated website. Oh, excellent. Yeah, that's uh, pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. And especially for static website, Hugo is, uh, uh, and others. I like it compared to something like Jekyll just because it, doesn't have dependencies that break all the time. Go is nicer than Ruby in that case. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So yeah, check it out. And uh, that's the static site generators. 
Uh, then next, we ha uh, I thought it would be good to remind people that there is still a call for papers going yes. on for the FOSDEM 2019 BSD dev room. We have a full day dev room, but only if there are enough talks. Otherwise, they will shorten it to a half day, and that wouldn't be good. So if you have something, you can still submit it to the uh, FOSDEM 2019 uh, dev room. Uh, you need to log into the FOSDEM website and then select the... Um, or the, the call for paper system, and then um, select um, as the destination for your talk, I guess, or the room, the, the BSD dev room. It's in the list there. And you have time until uh, December 10, 2018. So don't waste time and submit something. I should also do that. Uh, I've been lacking a little bit. I'm, I'm waiting to hear because my talk is on the short list for the main track. Oh, I didn't know you were submitting to the main track. Excellent. Yeah. You you stepped up the game for FOSDEM here. Excellent. Yeah, so anyone... So um, I mean, somebody needs working... to submit to the BSD dev room in my place. <laughs> yeah, and remember, it's not the free BSD dev room, it's the BSD, BSD dev room. Dev. It's That's all every... the BSDs. We've yeah. always had a good mix. Big and small, uh, and it makes... yeah. Last nice year, mixture. we had FreeBSD, NetBSD, OpenBSD, uh, ElectroBSD, and EdgeBSD. We're all represented. Mm -hmm. And the FOSDEM audience is always uh, great. There's a lot of people there. So if you want to get the word out about your latest project on OpenBSD, whatever it is, any BSD, that's the venue you should be at. And since it's the start of yes. the year, and you get yeah. a lot of interest. If you're a BSD person, you might also consider not only going to the BSD talks. Uh, there are rooms on many other topics. And if you want some of those other open source projects to, you know, be aware of the fact that people want to use that software on OpenBSD, uh, for example, then you might go to the Go dev room uh, and talk to them about making sure that Hugo and other Go programs work nice on OpenBSD. Or go to the KDE dev room and, and make sure that KDE is going to run on your favorite BSD. And Excellent, so yeah. It's a, it's a great way to, you know, actually get people in other projects to to care about BSD. Connect uh, they're the more likely, projects. Yes, yeah. well, you know, if, if someone has actually come up to them and talked to them in person about it, they're probably going to remember that more than an email. Uh, and maybe that gets them to pay a bit more attention to BSD all of BSDs in general. Uh, and yeah, it's a great way to a, advocate for your favorite BSD among the other, you know, because it's not just an operating system conference, it's the Free Open Source Software Developers European Meeting. There are thousands of people from every possible project. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and also many projects like VLC and others uh, schedule their yearly project meeting stuff around FOSDEM since everybody's going to go there anyway. Yeah, you can find the field Z people with their Coney hats. <laughs> um, but any, any project we three still um, need to uh, get the word about their, whether there will be a FreeBSD table there during the main conference as well on the two days, the Saturday and Sunday. Um, once we know, then uh, we'll let you know. And yeah, other than that, there's great activities. Just visit FOSDEM and you will definitely have a good time. Okay, next up we have a YouTube video from Claudio Jäger about Open BGPD. Gotta go fast. Yeah, so if you're interested in BGPD, check it out. Then we have the next release candidate of Project Trident is now available with some additional fixes. 
So check that out if you're interested. We'd love to hear somebody write a blog post about their experience uh, trying out Project Trident. Then we have, uh, in case you didn't get the note, uh, FreeBSD 10.4 has passed its end of life, uh, which was October 31st. So if you still have any machines running FreeBSD 10. anything uh, or anything older than 10, uh, you're well out of support and you should upgrade yep. to FreeBSD 11.2 or 12.0, although it's only an RC2. Yeah, but what better time to get the newest features and yeah. Yep. Don't stay on that old version. It, there are cooler stuff, bug fixes in the 10.4 won't get versions. package updates anymore. The port tree doesn't work with 10.4 anymore. You really want to get off 10.4. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and last but not least is you can play Crazy Train through your APU2 speaker. <laughs> because why not? Uh, <laughs> this is on the Mastodon network, BSD.network. If you are not on that one, uh, please join if you want to uh, get the, all the bits about the BSDs. Uh, so if you just echo the music notes, pipe to do as uh, to dev speaker. Uh, uh, just echo a certain sense. sequence and yeah, the fun begins. I should They should put a video out there to just see what, the, what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Nice idea. So, time for feedback and questions this week. We're still running low on feedback and questions, although people have heard our cries and are submitting uh, stuff that they really want to also get answers to. And so, um, we have three uh, for this week, uh, starting with Tobias, or Tobias, uh, satisfying my storage hunger and wallet pains. Ooh. Um, <laughs> goes like this. Hello, Benedict and Alan. Firstly, I would like to thank you for the always interesting and educational show. Well, thank you. You're a stable in my work and home commute, and I appreciate the technical nature of the show every uh, or very much. Oh, great. That's good to hear. Um, so the main reason I'm writing to you is to ask for some guidance in expanding my storage in a scalable manner. I currently have a FreeNAS machine running with four terabytes of usable storage. This has worked fine for a while, but my backup needs have exceeded what the machine can provide. I have looked at a NetApp DS2246 disk shelf, but would like something a little less noisy and power-hungry. My idea is to set up a BSD machine with some 10 terabyte HDDs to function like a disk shelf and present the storage to the current FreeNAS machine like a disk shelf would. I don't mind getting my hands dirty and fiddle around with configuration for a couple of weekends, uh, but thought it would be best to ask someone who actually knows what they're doing instead of just hacking a solution together. Would it be possible to set up a FreeBSD machine to do this, or is there a better method you would recommend? Well, a disk shelf doesn't have a computer in it. It's yeah, it's just literally just takes a, an external SAS connector back to the computer and it just connects to the drives. Um, if you have built a nice BSD machine with some 10 terabyte hard drives in it, why not just run FreeNAS on that? Um, well, maybe that's already the limiting factor because not too many cables around or no extension cards or something. Because 10 terabytes of HDDs. No, it's multiple 10 terabyte hard drives. Oh, multiple even. Oh, yes. yes. Buying some buying some 10 terabyte hard drives. Yeah, um, okay. Because, <clears throat> yeah, the stuff you would need to try to make it act like a shelf is kind of strange. Um, 
and I wouldn't recommend that. So yeah, I would probably just run FreeNAS on the new machine, um, mm-hmm. and then you could retire the old one, I guess. Um, yeah. As far as other options, mm-hmm. like you could run the computer and not have it do anything and get the right adapters to run the external SAS cable from, so you you need a, an LSI HBA, like a 9300E, mm-hmm. um, or 9300-8E that goes in the FreeNAS machine and has external SAS ports instead of internal, the cable to go to the thing that's going to be your shelf then because it's not a shelf, you need something that takes the external connector and turns it into the internal type and can fans out to the hard drives. Um, and that's just a bit weird. Like I've, I've seen one of the ones for six gigabit SAS before um, and looked at using it to turn an extra port on my LSI into an external one, but yeah. It'd be really weird to have a whole computer running, but not use the operating system on it or something. Or, you know, you'd have to do some kind of hack to get the power supply to turn on in the second machine that has no motherboard and just has hard drives in the chassis or whatever. Mm. It's all very weird. Yeah. It definitely needs to be, uh, as he wrote, as he writes, uh, less noisy and power hungry. Right, so, like if you're setting up a BSD machine, it's going to have BSD on it. You might as well put FreeNAS on that, right? Yeah, Rather they know than, what they're doing. Like exporting the to hard drives via iSCSI to the FreeNAS is just icky. Yeah, <laughs> and and you don't want to be like sending everything over the network twice anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not uh, the best way for performance to. Uh, yeah. So Copy I would twice. mostly just use the new BSD machine with the 10 terabyte hard drives as your free NAS now. But. Yeah, unless someone who's listening uh, has done something like that. and Well, I've done the shelf thing, just I used big noisy shelves. Um, <laughs> yeah, well. I've seen some get... external things that do like Thunderbolt or Ice, or not uh, Thunderbolt or like ESAT and stuff. I've just, I don't know if I've seen a smallish home gamer type uh, external SAS chassis. Hmm. Uh, but if you were going to do that, you'd want something like that. That's literally just powers the hard drives and hooks the SATA ports up to a, an external SAS connector uh, and maybe has the expander in it. Because um, if, if you build a computer to do it, then you have this whole computer that was it doing nothing. It's just like running and not running an operating system where it runs BSD, but it's not connected to the hard drives. That doesn't seem to make any sense to use a second computer as a storage shelf. Hmm. You know, worst case, you end up with two free NASs and you back up some stuff to one and the other stuff to the other. Oh, well. It's it's always the, the problem of migrating your current storage to the newer, bigger part and also well, not if, running if you over have budget. Well, if both free NASs at the same time, then... That's yeah, that's easy. Easy yeah. enough. With ZFS replication, it's not a problem anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, just, you know, thinking like what I'm going to need in five years, in 10 years, in, right. if you can think that far. 
Um, but yeah, it's uh, ho hopefully we got you some pointers and ideas that will hopefully um, result in a nice storage shelf that will supply your backup needs uh, for a while. Okay, so thanks for that one. Um, next up is Lasse um, with a question about re um, FreeBSD backups. Oh yeah, always important. Um, uh, goes like this. Greetings, Alan Benedict. I've been using FreeBSD for a few years now as a file server. ZFS is great, and I really do like snapshots. Oh, yes, you don't want to miss them once you've <laughs> experienced them. Uh, and uh, now I'd like to do offsite backups, but using cloud services like Tarsnap can be quite expensive when you're storing video files. I did acquire LTO5 tape drives, or, or one, and I'd like to use it. Is there any way to use LTO tape drive native encryption on FreeBSD? If not, is there another way to do encrypted tape backups? This is a question for the FreeBSD tape expert, Dan Langill. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's probably listening right now. <laughs> so hopefully he's listening and he can uh, write into us. But otherwise, you might poke, uh, I think it's D. Langill on Twitter. Or you find him or some of his articles about those tape drives in his uh, diary. Yep. Dan Langill's other diary, that is. Uh, just Google Dan Langill and you will find an LTO well. probably. That's there are a couple of articles. Uh, so <laughs> right. uh, twitter.com slash D L A N G I L L E uh, or Dan dot Langill L A N G I L L E dot org. Yeah. Uh, yeah, of BSD can and PGCon fame. Among other things. I'll put those in the show notes. Um, yeah, he's the LTO yes. backup. Dan has, uh, I think, two big tape library robot things and, and blogs about them frequently. Uh, and would, I'm sure, be happy to answer some questions about LTO tape drives on Twitter if you uh, tweet them at him. Mm -hmm. Or even backup in general. I mean, uh, yes. that's always uh, topic. He's given tutorials on Bacula and similar backup systems many times uh, and is... You know, the person I would ask my questions about backups to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in case we're still wondering how to do them properly, or especially with tape drives. Okay, um, that's our referral here. And uh, I think that's it for this week. Mm -hmm. It is. Um, okay, then again, if you have anything uh, that we should cover in a future episode, then let us know at uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv, especially um, questions that you have. Otherwise, this segment is very small, and mm -hmm. this is something that other people benefit a lot from. We get that a lot. So yeah, thanks for watching, and uh, see you next week.